Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples and the Wasanas peoples. Welcome to the show. So, Courtney, what are we talking about today? Well, today we have the pleasure of speaking to David Blaint. Uh, he is a professor at the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. He is a science educator and is nationally recognized for his excellence in teaching. Um, and he talks a lot about science and beauty. So, hello, David. Welcome hello. to the program. How well, are you? you? I'm fine. Thank you. Good. So, David, science and beauty, those, those terms, we don't often hear them in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. How, can, can you talk a bit about how those come together for how you? How those come together for me? Well, um, we don't talk about them in the same sentence because we haven't talked about them as belonging together in the 20th century a whole lot and now into the 21st century. But if you go and look at the scientists and the work that scientists did in the 19th and the 18th century, um, when science was really emerging as a formal study of nature, all those scientists talked about beauty and awe and wonder. It was second nature for them. Many of them were artists and did exquisite drawings and paintings and some of them wrote stories. And so uh, science and art and beauty were naturally part partners in the description of the world that we live in. It's only when we moved into the 20th century it became more clinical. Actually, really, just prior to World War II, it became much more clinical in its turn and, quote, objective. But prior to that, science was much more engaged in its description of things. So that separation of the aesthetic from, from everyday life, mm -hmm. I guess, happened as we became more and more and more scientific. I don't know if we became more and more scientific or more and more distanced from what science is. If you look at some scientists like Rachel Carson's work um, when she wrote Silent Spring, she also has written about beauty and awe in her work uh, as well. She's the famous environmentalist and started the environmental mov movement in her um, classic study of DDT. And so in some ways, kind of recovering that. So environment, the environmental movement in the 70s and 80s recovers a lot of that tradition, I think, mm -hmm. of science. So in some ways, um, science got distracted in the Cold War and in the space race towards a more physics kind of mechanical look at the, at the world. And really, we should see historically, that's a two or three decade absence. And what we're trying to do in science education, which is really influenced by the space race, is to recover some of the, the themes and the ideas that were present in science prior to that. Mm. David, that's fascinating and leads into um, something that we were talking about a little bit earlier that you had done with your fourth year students, mm -hmm. teaching students about science and beauty. Right. Do you have, uh, do you want to talk about that a sure. little bit? So one of the problems we have in science education is that teacher candidates, um, beginning teachers who are going through a program to become certified as teachers so they can teach in our schools, if they're becoming elementary school teachers, traditionally they have very weak backgrounds in science. They, they have high school science, of course, and maybe one or two courses at university. Two at the University of Victoria, one everywhere else in BC. And now we have, expect them to go into schools and be champions for science. But they don't even fundamentally understand what science is. They didn't really get a good sense of it in high school, and they don't have a good sense of it at university, and now this. So in science education, science teacher education, we have tried all kinds of methods to help these teachers begin to understand the nature of science. So I used to do like home inquiries and anything that would get them sort of being scientists. Um, we've tried growing plants, we've tried various methods. 
uh, so they can try different variables and get the whole idea of what science is. None of those have worked very successfully. And I would say the research says about 20-30% of the students get a sense of science from these things. They've been pretty well unsuccessful. What, why is that? Why is that? I think they, they, they're, they're too superficial. That's my sense. And they also don't seem to touch anything deep in the students emotionally, which I think is a critical part. So when a scientist goes out in to study rocks or goes out to study the ocean, whatever they're studying, the, the stars, um, they've had all these years of experience, but also their life and their emotion and their desire is trapped in part of that inquiry. And really, when you ask students to do a little home inquiry, it doesn't get into that. Mm -hmm. So I wondered for a long time about what to do about this um, problem, about students understanding, well, what is science exactly, since I'll be teaching children that. So what did I do? A friend of mine, I think I shared the story, a friend of mine um, wrote to me and asked me if I would do a chapter for a book he was writing on um, teacher education for elementary schools uh, and preparing teachers to teach in elementary schools. And he wanted me to write a chapter, um, it was on aesthetics and that, uh, aesthetics and science teacher education. So I wrote back to him and said, I have no idea about this topic, this isn't my topic, I don't ever do research in this topic. And he wrote back to me and said, what a great opportunity for you, why don't you try it? <laughs> so <laughs> so um, his name is Donald and I thanked him and he is um, a professor of aesthetics and ethics. And so um, I've known him for a long time. I knew him when he was a graduate student. So we sort of did our doctorates in the same time and we bumped into each other at conferences. So I thought I'd give it a try. So I asked my students to pick something in nature that they don't know about or would like to know about and to study it and to learn more about it. So it could be like, what causes, here a classic one is, what does cause sunsets? Or why do leaves turn color? It could be whatever, it, those are some of the common ones that I got. And then to, I asked students to then depict their journey of understanding aesthetically. Write a poem, make, write a song, um, do a dance, um, do a painting, uh, whatever you'd like to do, write a story. And this is the part that they find is really odd. <laughs> and I assure them that I'm not going to mark this part. It's just what you have to do. And then what are the implications of this for teaching children science? What I found from this assignment, to my complete surprise, it's a very difficult assignment is that it, students realize that there seems to be no end of, there seems to be no end of the questions that can be pursued in science. So once you learn about sunsets, it's like there's another topic behind that and behind that and behind that. And see, and they, I get this comment all the time. I never realized that science seems to be never ending. Hmm. Um, they start using words like quest. Uh, it's a quest for understanding. So in that sense, they get a, a greater understanding of what science is, this never ending quest. But the other thing that comes out of it is they get deeply emotionally attached to the topic they're studying through their depiction of it aesthetically. It touches something emotional in them. And they often are very moved when they try to explain it when we talk about it in class, when they share their what they did. And they always share, it's always volunteer. So whoever wants to share can share. And I, students are almost moved to tears as they say, well, I did a painting because I was studying clouds and I never really realized, and then they get choked up because their study for them became something deeply personal mm. and their depiction is deeply personal and they begin to connect their sort of search and understanding as part of something that is a human search and understanding and they become in invested in it in a way that they never did in any other assignments and I find that part pulls them in deeper so 
One of the really surprising parts about this assignment was about 20 to 25% of the students um, began to talk about how much they had fallen in love with the world. They actually used phrases like that. They fall in love with the world. They became deeply engaged with the world. And that brought to them a sense of um, deep uh, responsibility for it. This sort of environmental ethic emerged out of their writing. We need to take care of it because this is such a beautiful and precious thing. That was a real surprise to me. I didn't really expect that. I wasn't looking. I didn't know what to expect. But that really did surprise me. And um, when I began to look at the philosophy of aesthetics and people who've written about that, they do talk about this very idea in some, some philosophical writings. So it seemed to confirm that when you ask students to be involved with beauty, surprising things happen. But one of them that comes out is responsibility for that beauty in a, in a profound way. So that was quite a surprise and quite amazing. And I found that every time I do this assignment, there's a small group. Not everyone does it. But there's some one group who really kind of run with it and go with it a long ways. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. And, and I'm wondering how much of that um, us or, or students having lost sight of the connection between mm. science and and being in love with the world is is sort of a, a spin-off from that as you said that whole kind of cold war effect on how we conceptualize science how we have that structure of the disciplines approach that was sort of dominant in the right. 60s mm -hmm. and and we still continue that i think to a large degree with this and i know you have some concerns about this whole uh, stem approach right. science technology engineering mathematics right. and and I'm wondering if, if that's linked also to your seeing an absence of the aesthetic. In well, that's a really great question, Ted. And I think right off the bat, I would agree. It is. Um, I need to back up a little bit and say how they're connected. So STEM, STEM is really interesting because it's ubiquitous now. And so the question we might ask as curriculum scholars is where did this come from? So my colleague Matthew Weinstein and Shannon um, Gleason, who's also doing her doctorate in this very topic. So Matthew is a contemporary of mine at Tacoma. So we, um, we were asking the same question. Actually, Matthew and I presented on this, and then Shannon said, this is what I'm doing my doctorate on. And so she joined us, and we've been researching on it ever since. It's really hard to find out where STEM came from, but it appears to be immigration policy from the UK. So it originated, as far as an acronym, not in that exact order, uh, in the United Kingdom, looking for particular people for particular jobs and was picked up in the same year by the United States who reorganized into STEM. So it seemed to be initially, we're looking for people with backgrounds in science, technology, engineering, mathematics to immigrate to our country to help with our economic prosperity and our competitiveness. Mm. That's the phrase. We need st STEM for economic competitiveness uh, so we can be better than other countries, which almost invariably means China and Russia. So this is very much this geopolitical um, conflict uh, almost like a Cold War conflict, continuing now through who's got the highest. That, that's really interesting because when you, I mean, if we think back a year to the, the uh, America's immigration policy and what Trump put in place with that executive order, the first people out of the gate in terms of saying this is disastrous were the tech companies, right. the, the people who rely on that kind of expertise mm -hmm. from around the world right. to, you know, to run Google or Apple mm -hmm. or Microsoft or any of these places. Right. Yeah, it's a pretty good example of how the President of the United States is out of touch with the basic policies of his own country. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is a terrifying process. Well, what happened with STEM is we had a, an approach to science education that was developed in, really pioneered in Canada and the Netherlands. But a few countries were pioneering it and picked up 
first introduced by in a conference in the United States, but really picked up and developed in Canada, called um, STS or STSE, which is science in the and technology and how they're related, and societal issues and environmental issues. And so Canada was a pioneer in this kind of curriculum development, and it really was making considerable inroads into schools and curriculum. And then STEM came along and just has like a tide has just washed over it. Mm. So it's all STEM now. In STSE, we were we were looking again back for this this connection to the environment and what does that mean and what is our relationship, our profound human relationship to to the planet that is us and we're part of it, and how is technology helping and not helping, and what are the societal impacts of scientific discovery and technological innovation? All those things were part of the school curriculum. Now it's all how can we make as many scientists, technologists, engineers, and mathematics as possible as quickly as possible without any regard to the ethics and the considerations of those things. So I'm concerned about that. My concern and criticisms about STEM, which Matthew and I and Shannon have developed, um, brought me back to wondering about STSE, and then I discovered this idea of beauty. And so they've all kind of been part of my move in my life from my dominant research, which has been kind of a cry against horrible ways of doing teaching, and and science curriculum that's sterile and all these things, Cold War science, post-Cold War science education, has brought me back to a more positive space now. Instead of deconstructing those things, I'm now saying, well, how can we move forward? And it seems to me that we can move forward with beauty. And the irony of all of this is now I'm beginning to think about and write about, consider whether beauty, in fact, is the foundation for STEM. Beautiful science, technology is a kind of beauty, the, the building a beautiful thing. And what would that mean, rather than an ugly thing? Or how can you engineer something that's beautiful? And the, the elegant symmetry and beauty that's part of mathematics. And I don't think we talk about that with kids at all, or near, not nearly enough. Um, so when an engineer builds something, we can ask the engineer, yes, but is it beautiful? That's a legitimate question. Don't just build something, build something beautiful. And I think engineers actually want to do that. Mm -hmm. I think they do. And when we can look at a technology, we can say, is this a beautiful technology? Uh, I can pick up my cell phone and talk to my son who's living in Japan. There's something beautiful about that, but there's also something not. And we need to have that discussion. So I think the question of beauty actually helps us understand where we might take STEM in a responsible, socially conscious way. So that's maybe trying to beat it at its own game. I don't know. Um, but that's where I am right now in my research, in my thinking. Which is incredibly important for the next mm. generation, like this idea of so. connecting mm. these skills. I'm thinking back as you're talking, and I'm mm. thinking back to my science education because I'm an adult educator. Mm. I come from the social sciences, and I did not like math, and I did not like science right. because it was sterile. Mm -hmm. It was void of any and all emotion. Right. And because I couldn't connect it to that emotive part in me of me, and I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Right. I really struggled. And not because I don't think that it's not valuable, but I, I, I needed something mm -hmm. to connect that. And what right. you're talking about, especially with these students, and that idea, right? If mm -hmm. I could find a way to learn about um, different types of either math or science or engineering mm -hmm. or any of that, where I could incorporate my own emotions to it, mm -hmm. it's amazing what, what we could want to learn and right. want to grow as a skill. And we're not doing that for our children We're now not. it's coming though it's mm -hmm. coming and it's i coming I, I, you have mm -hmm. grandkids and mm -hmm. i have grandkids and and you know that's sort of our window into 
what the world is like right. for people that age. And I was talking to my granddaughter a couple of weeks ago, and I said, so Nika, what are you doing at school? You know, what, what kind of projects are you working on? Mm -hmm. It's grade three. Mm -hmm. And um, she said, oh, uh, PowerPoint. We're learning how to, how to do PowerPoint. Right. I said, oh, that's really cool. What's, what's the topic of your PowerPoint? What are you working on? First people's principles of learning. Yeah, right. there you go. Interesting. And then, and then <laughs> last night, she was in a tizzy because she they were over for dinner. She'd forgotten her homework at home, and it was due this morning, and she was going to work on it at our place. And I said, mm -hmm. what is it that you're working on? Oh, it's a report on a Canadian activist. Oh, I yeah. said, oh, who's yeah, the great. activist? And I, I actually forget her name. Yeah. But it's this woman who opened up her house to injured owls oh, yes, and became right. yeah. uh, became this person who, you know, sort of mm -hmm. nursed these wild right. injured things back to life. And mm -hmm. I thought, this is grade three mm -hmm. and they're exposing them to that kind of thinking. I mean, think of your own grade three. Right. Right. Yeah. My grade three was not like that. No. And I think that's part of what we need to look at. Right. Is we're facing you know, very critical time in the world and our planet is very sick mm. and we are now, I think, starting to become more open to different ways of knowing and different mm. ways of being except our, you know, it, it's not just about colonial, right. imperial type of ideologies and we're starting to really evaluate why we're doing it. And it sounds like I have two lovely curriculum instructors <laughs> here who are quite renowned. Both of you have this passion for an understanding that that bridge between beauty science whatever you're teaching mm. and connecting it into the emotion is a is a fundamental necessity for education am i is that correct i think so um but i think the word i, I love there what you were describing is um connections i think for so long um different fields in education have been interested in their separateness and trying to carve out their territory in curriculum studies one of the the more radical versions of curriculum studies, at least, has been looking for how these interconnect all the way along. And we're starting to see the fruits of that, I think, now in some of the teachers who are in our schools doing interconnected, inter, across curriculum kind of, kinds of assignments and ideas and teaching. The danger, though, is that sometimes in those cross-curricular connections, certain things may be left out that are essential, too. So you have to be diligent and you have to really know what you're doing. But I do see a change. I agree with you, Ted. Um, probably the most delightful thing I experienced was I was taking my grandson Noam to his school um, and as we're walking in I said Noam do you um, do science because lots of elementary school teachers were, used to be afraid to do it and weren't doing it and he said ah oh, granddad we do science every day every day we do science I said really he says yeah what are you doing he told me and it was really this great project they were doing and I walk in and the teacher that he had was one of the teachers I'd had mm. that I, I had taught her in my teacher education course she looked at me and said, what are you doing here? I said, no one was my grandson. She went, no way. But she was doing the things that we had talked about in class in her classroom. Nice. And that was a great moment for me as a grandparent and as a science educator and as a teacher. Uh, I thought, wow, you know, this is really making a difference in my own family, no less. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, That's as well. fantastic. A good, good story of connection. But I think I agree. It's about connections. And we're making those connections in our teacher ed program. And we're, we're enforcing them and encouraging them. And the teachers are keen to do it. And they go out and they make some things. So I'm feeling very proud of where Canada is going. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier because you just kind of slipped it in and okay. in describing the context for that aesthetic uh, journey assignment. Mm -hmm. And you said, and I didn't grade it. Mm -hmm. So well, actually, I grade the assignment. I don't oh. grade what they do aesthetically. 
Okay, There's so it, it, and, and why is that? Why, why did you remove the grading component right. to the aesthetic? So this is, um, this is what I tell them. Depict your journey any way you want to. You can write a song, you write a poem, any way you want to that is an arts-based approach and has a sense of aesthetics um, to it. But I'm not qualified to judge the product that you make. I mean, I'm not an art educator and an artist. Well, I dabble in it, but I don't have the qualifications to do that. And that's really not the point of the assignment anyway. The point of the assignment is the reflection you do based on what you've produced and where it took you. And why did it take you there? And what are the implications for that for teaching? So the implications part for teaching is what I can assess. And it, it helps me see the attunement of this teacher candidate to children and also to the idea of teaching children science. So that part is the, part, the only part that I mark, actually. The rest of it is just what they, they just have to do it. And I find I can do that. Um, and some teachers stay fairly superficial. And they really don't think about children at all. And they just think, well, yes, it's kind of fun. I guess maybe I could get the kids to do art. So they haven't really taken it anywhere. But most do not. Most take it quite a long ways and take it directions I wouldn't have imagined. That's what I'm looking for. Thoughtful teachers who've taken this and really thought about their practice. That's the part I mark. But the assignment itself, the aesthetics production, I don't mark. Well, yeah, and what I'm learning in, in my research and in my practices for experiential learning and what have you is that reflection and that reflection mm -hmm. and insight is absolutely key. Assessing it is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand, like, that's part of it. When you're doing this reflection, it's very important to figure out, is there a connection between what a person is doing and how they're looking at it and yeah. having some insight from it. But that's really a pass-fail type of deal. It's tricky to mark, but you can do it. Um, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm unfortunately institutionally constrained to give a letter grade, so I have to put a mark out of 10. But I can actually do it because at the very first class, I give them um, a handout, a little blurb written by one of our Nobel laureates. Um, and what he does, he gave a speech to a group of teachers one time. He said, science is like a little child learning how to walk. You get up, you walk around, you bump into furniture, you fall down, you get up. So that's kind of what science is like. I thought it's a nice metaphor. Mm -hmm. So I asked them, is this an appropriate metaphor? Do you agree? Do you not agree? And what is science? And so then I collect those assignments. I read them all. And then I, I put them aside. And then when I give out the aesthetics assignment, I hand those back. And I ask them, after you go on this journey, take a look at your original definition. Would you change it or not? And when they, it's amazing what they say. At first, I thought this. I came into this course thinking of science like this, but now I think it's like this. And I can see that um, kind of reflection there. So it's surprisingly easy for me to actually give a mark on this. I'm, surpri I'm surprised by it. I know it sounds crass that we grade these things. I prefer to say complete or incomplete. Everyone we get complete then. But um, I'm actually able to do it. Which is fantastic. Yeah. So it sounds like for they're me, all high marks, mind you. But of course, <laughs> but <laughs> and usually people who are taking these types of courses are wanting to engage and wanting right. to reflect, exactly. which, is, mm -hmm. which is also helpful. Um, so for someone you know who's listening to this, who's going, "Wow, how do I connect this?" Right? Mm. How did that's what I'm thinking right away. If I was listening to this, I would say, "How do I do this? What do I do right. mm. as a teacher, or as even if somebody who is have who is with youth and is working with youth?" What advice would you give, maybe, for someone who is looking to incorporate some of this into their practice? Oh, right into the practice. Great question. Um, here's what I would encourage. I would say whether you're teaching science or social studies or mathematics or whatever school subject area you're happen to be doing, invite the students to express themselves in alternate ways. 
rather than just the usual write an essay kind of a thing or a report. Um, allow students to, to, to compose a dance. Allow them to write a poem. But have them explain the dance. Have them explain the, the painting. Have them explain the poem. Um, as, as a way of, I want to express what I went through and how I understand this this way uh, as well. And if they can explain it to you, that's great. But allow some alternatives that way. I would encourage that with teachers when they think about their assignments. Because when we link our cognitive understanding of something to our expression of it artistically, something super powerful happens in a deeply, um, in a, in a deeply emotional way that takes us to a deeper level of cognition. Let's call it that. I almost want to say, what I want to say is it takes us to a deep, deep, deeper spiritual understanding of, of, of knowledge. But some, some listeners might not like the word spiritual. But I think it takes your cognition from being kind of a, a surface understanding to a deeper, kind of more profound way of looking at things. I'm not sure why it does. There's something psychological. I'm not a psychology major. But it feels to me like something... Something, you touch something more basic, something more raw, something more primitive even, um, or deep down in us that um, lies there. And when you do that, then, then the understanding is, is deep, profound, and I think lasting. I hope, hope so anyway. I think, I, I think some of that has to do with the, the way language itself works. Mm. You know, that for me, poetry is an amazingly powerful medium. I'm always impressed by how in a sparse number of lines, in a yeah. few words, poets can convey all kinds of sentiment right. and thought. Yeah. And, I, and I'm reminded of something Noam Chomsky talked about, mm. uh, saying that despite all the linguists thinking and working, there's no one that's yet come up with an explanation of how language can be combined and recombined in an infinite number of ways to convey every human experience right. that you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Yeah, somehow it does. Yeah. 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 It's so true. It's so true. I was um, at the symphony. We had we had tickets to the symphony, so we heard Rachmaninoff's Symphony Number no. Two, E minor. I've never heard the symphony before. The third movement is this very beautiful part, but right near the end, it he goes a little sad. I don't know how else to explain it. Like it's like there's such beauty, but you, you don't live forever, and that's it's kind of sad. And I was moved at the end of that movement. I was pretty close to tears. I thought, wow, I'm just listening to music, and I'm, I'm getting moved to tears here. There's not even any lyrics. Um, but you could just feel his emotion that he put into what he did. And if he was able to talk about it, I think, and say, explain it to us, we'd see that there. Can you imagine doing that with students and, let, and liberating that artistic part that all of us have, that creative part that all of us have? Yeah. Well, I think that's the mm -hmm. key is because especially everybody but especially children want to be creative they mm. want to express themselves they want to incorporate what they're learning into their right. emotions and have that unification of all different types of being and i think if we have curriculum that supports the the students right. and the teachers that support the curriculum that supports the students the oh the places we could go oh yeah mm. for sure right? this doesn't mean that they're not really learning science or they're not really learning their mathematics but they're learning how to express their understanding in ways that that are not the typical test-driven kinds of ways or essay-driven. Not that those aren't valuable, but that's all we do. Mm -hmm. And I think when you tap into those other ways, you also enable a greater and deeper understanding. That's my conviction with science anyway. And I bet you it works with pretty well every subject. Well, David, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation about so science welcome. and the yeah. Cold War and beauty and how it all 
continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. So we really appreciate your time. Oh, I'm glad to come here and chat with you all. And yeah, yeah. thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. Thank you. mm -hmm. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to David Blades. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening.